Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world of shoes and sealing wax. Shoes, ships, and sealing wax. I'll get that <laughs> said. But about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. And giggling in the background over my trip over words is my partner, Ravinder. She's here in the studio with me, urging things on. So say hello, Ravinder, and share your special insight for the day. Well, hello, everyone. I'm so glad that you can join us. I think today's show is going to be really important. Great subject matter indeed. I ask you to do one thing, to say shoes and ships and sealing wax each time, and you can't even get that right. (laughs) Maybe I should be asking for tips on how to keep your husband uh, in control. No, it's a wonderful day. a bigger day. whip. You I do. saw that. You do have the bigger whip. But let's keep it clean. Let's keep it clean and let's have some fun. All right. In this week's Spotlight, we turn our attention to happiness. What is happiness? What makes you happy? Is happiness something we can hold on to, maintain throughout our lives? Or does it come and go like shadows in the dawn? Do we have to know unhappiness in order to recognize happiness? Or is happiness just the absence of unhappy situations or circumstances? Webster is not much help when it comes to defining happiness. Webster simply puts it this way. Happiness, the state of being happy. (laughs) How good. Perhaps one of the best definitions of happiness is set out by Vocabulary.com this way. Happiness is that feeling that comes over you when you know life is good and you can't help but smile. It's the opposite of sadness. Happiness is a sense of well-being, joy, or contentment. When people are successful or safe or lucky, they feel happiness. Close quote. Now that said... I am not necessarily happy just because I'm not sad. I can feel safe and not feel happy. Many people go about their lives perfectly healthy and still are not happy. And the same can be said for those who know success, fame, and fortune. We've all heard the stories of those, particularly in the entertainment world, because their stories are headlines, who take their own lives often indirectly through drug and alcohol abuse, because despite their success, their fame, their fortune, they are unhappy. So we're left with a definition that remains lacking. Is there something then that gives rise to happiness, whether we're rich or poor, healthy or unwell, safe or in danger, and so forth? I think the fact is, there is. What might that be? It is a sense of satisfied purpose. It is the knowing that we are fulfilling a destiny uniquely ours and that that destiny 
is always about love. Love for our fellow human beings, appreciation for all life, and love for the creative force behind our being. Indeed, I believe that happiness is best found and most often held when we are in service to love. When we go to the aid of a fellow human being, we feel a rush of being that says, our life makes a difference. This rush can follow us and often tingle our physical being, for it vibrates our being with a recognition that this is what life is about. When we are in service to that which I have defined as love, we are fulfilling our purpose, and somehow we inherently acknowledge this, for it simply feels good all over. We can be a plumber, not there to make money, but to solve a problem. We can be an attorney. We can be a banker. When we take our work as service, everything changes. Holding that feeling in the ever-present now ensures the longevity of happiness. For happiness can be had by simply placing yourself in service to the needs of those who are hurt or needing. This can be difficult for a variety of reasons, but it is nevertheless the most rewarding and permanent of that special state of mind we call happiness. Those are my thoughts anyway. I welcome yours as always. How about you, Ravinder? What do you think? There's lots of food for thought in what you were talking about. You know, you you talk about you can be safe and secure, but you're still not happy. But there are people who are not safe and secure, but they still find moments of happiness or that, you know, you can be poor, but you can still have a laugh with friends. Um, So, you know, it gets complicated. I have to, you know, ask, does it have to do with more? You know, that's one of the problems, I think, with stars, um, you know, commit suicide and stuff like that. They, You always want more. It's like being happy is not a constant state in that type of environment. Um, I think back to our son, you know, I remember when we first bought him a s- skateboard and he said to us, I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life, you know, and his face was all beaming on whatever and that happiness did not last 24 hours before he wanted something else so i i think there is value in what you're saying here about um finding happiness in different places you know in helping other people it's not a thing that you get but it's being valued it's um being part of something more than just yourself so well, that's, I think that probably is the best place to get the most constant kind of happiness. But. And, and, you know, and I think of service as love. I tried to make that synonymous in today's spotlight because I remember being in a local grocery store behind a fellow who was clearly a laborer by the way he was dressed and how dirty he was. And he was counting change. Uh, at the counter, and I I was about to offer to give him some more money, but he seemed very proud, and and, and he had just enough. Uh, He was buying three little items, and those three items were candy. And he explained to the uh, 
clerk that every day after work, he would stop and pick up something for each of his children and take it home because the glee on their face when he came home, they'd all hug him, wrap their arms around him, and he'd hug them back and he'd give them their little treats. That made his life worth living. Now, you know, service, we think about service like, well, you know, I'm going to volunteer at the food bank and, and, and that's good. You know, that's good. But service can be just the way we treat our fellow human beings in our everyday activities. It can be slowing down and letting somebody in because their turn signal's on instead of stepping on the gas. It, it can be simply smiling at that grocery clerk when you're in the store. It, and, and, of course, COVID with masks. But, but you get my point. Uh, when we look at life as our ability to love life and all that's in it, then we can see that whatever we do for a living, we don't have to be a doctor or a nurse saving lives. We can be a human being doing anything, mowing lawns, building houses, If we see what we're doing as a service and we do that to the best of our ability to aid those that we're doing it for with that kind of integrity in our heart, then I think we find life satisfying. And therein, I think we discover happiness. I think you're absolutely right there. And the problem with the face mask you get around that by smiling big. Have a smile eyes. that reaches your eyes, you know. And then there's loads of health benefits to that too, as I've been learning. But that's another subject. Okay. Uh, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Professor Rupert Sheldrake, and we discussed his work and book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. Thomas wrote, I love Sheldrake's take on the problem with science and spirituality. Emily wrote, I have a fan. I have been a fan of Sheldrake's for some time, but you were able to obtain clarification to some ideas that have troubled me. Thanks for the show. Moving on, Tammy wrote, Hi, Eldon. I don't know if you remember me from Steve's Marine Service, but my encounter with you has profoundly changed my life or am working on it. You gave us a copy of your book, Choices and Illusions. Wow, I feel like I found my people. My cookie bag is getting smaller, and I am stretching my chicken hawk wings farther and farther every day. And I want to say to you, thank you for all that you do. Well, Tammy, of course, I remember you and your wonderful husband, Steve, and thank you for everything you've done for me. Tony wrote, your interviews bring so much information, enlightenment, and encouragement to my life. They really are life-changing. Finally, Peter wrote, I just want to thank Eldon for his way of spreading the knowledge. I found his videos about a month ago on YouTube and just love the way he speaks and transfers knowledge for others with stories and easy-to-understand language. Well, thank you, Peter. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. 
Now to today's show. Gain Without Pain with Dr. Greg Hammer. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Greg Hammer, MD, is a pediatric intensive care physician, pediatric anesthesiologist, and professor at Stanford University Medical Center. A member of the Stanford Well MD Initiative and the Wellness Committee for the American Society of Anesthesiologists, Dr. Hammer is currently the chair of the Physician Wellness Task Force for the California Society of Anesthesiologists. He has been a visiting professor and lecturer on wellness at institutions worldwide and teaches GAIN, G-A-I-N, and we'll break that down later, to medical students, residents, and fellows at Stanford. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Greg Hammer. Thank you so much, Elvin. It's great to be with you. It's indeed our pleasure. I love your book. I have to tell you that. I love how you wove everything together. I like the Q&A, the conversation. You've just done a wonderful job with the book. I really recommend this one to everyone, but we'll get into that in a bit. We like to learn th- three things from our guests on this show, Doctor. What is the message? Who is the messenger? And how do we use the information? To that end, please share with us what you're passionate about and why. Sure. Well, I, I think that uh, I love your discussion of happiness, so we can talk more about that. I think um, what happiness is, is is one important lesson how do we have more of it is another one. And uh, why is it that we don't experience happiness all the time? So just uh, those could be three important aspects of happiness, which is really all that all 7 billion of us want. And in fact, uh, it is our true nature. And it becomes veiled, unfortunately, by our development and the way our minds develop. And we tend to develop a a negativity bias, number one. And number two, we tend to develop obsession with the past and the future. And happiness, importantly, is in the present moment. I'm passionate about wellness in all of its aspects of uh, physical fitness. I think we have to take care of our bodies and, and sleep, exercise, and nutrition are key, especially now during the pandemic when people are in many cases stuck at home and don't have a regular schedule and and sleep exercise and nutrition tend to fall by the wayside so i'm very passionate about wellness both physical wellness and uh, spiritual wellness we might call it so those are my passions and i'm passionate about spreading the good message as are you and uh, again it's it's delightful to be with you today alvin that's wonderful. I love your passions. I, I've got a. I want to get into your book, but I've got a couple of the off the reservation, if you will, uh, sorts of questions um, that have to do more with your profession. You're an accomplished anesthesiologist, uh, and so you know my questions target that expertise, if you don't mind. I have spoken to many people who have undergone serious surgeries and been under general anesthetic for hours. Without exception, men and women alike, they've found that they're more emotional afterwards. Now, you know, I had open heart 13 years ago, triple bypass, and next thing I know, 
movies, television shows that never, never touched me emotionally. I, I'm tearing up in. Like, you know, I just can't hold back the tears. What is it, in your opinion, about this experience that increases the emotionality of the patients? Well, Eldon, I think a couple of things. One is having major surgery in particular puts us in touch with our mortality. And I think the good thing about that is, uh, first of all, we need to accept our mortality, and that's the A in gain being acceptance. And when we're put in touch with that, it does, in many cases, enhance our gratitude for everything we have, and it uh encourages us to consider things we have as opposed to what we don't have and get by our negativity bias. And so that goes to gratitude as well, which is the G in gain, which is an essential ingredient, as are the other three elements in happiness and resilience. So I think major surgery, especially cardiac surgery, for example, puts us in touch with the fact that we're fragile, we should be humble that we're here for a limited period of time and we should enjoy every moment of it. Sometimes more immediately the effects of anesthesia are to disinhibit our minds, if you will. So we have a lot of protective mechanisms and, and ways that we think that relate to our obsessions with the past and future and, and why we're fearful and anxious and feel shame and regret. And I think Sometimes uh, we have very significant defense mechanisms, and shortly after surgery, when we're emerging from anesthesia and perhaps for hours to days afterwards, we're sort of disinhibited. We're, um, that, that layer of uh, suppression of our true feelings is sort of uh, evaporated, and, and that allows us to really experience a fuller range of our, our feelings and emotions. What is it uh, that we're disinhibiting? I mean, these you know these feelings come from the unconscious, the people I've spoken to, and because I was interested in this, I've spoken to many. Um, <clears throat> yeah, they, they, these feelings are unconscious. It's not like you consciously recognize something. They just kind of swell up on you. So something has changed neuroanatomically or the way we're processing information in, in do we have any idea what that is? Well, I think, again, there's sort of acute and then longer-lasting effects related to anesthesia and surgery. I think in the acute phase, there may be some residual suppression of our brain function. And, um, you know, we have a balance normally of... Uh, stimulating pathways in our brain, if you will, and inhibitory pathways, so excitatory versus inhibitory, and we have a balance. And that sort of determines our baseline level of, of brain and mind activity. When we add a little bit of a drug, for example, that suppresses brain function, we often suppress the inhibitory pathways selectively. That's because those pathways have more connections and they're more prone to the sedative effects of drugs like alcohol and anesthetic agents. And so by suppressing selectively, initially at least, the inhibitory pathways, we get this excitatory predominance. And in that case, it tends to bring up a lot of things that 
uh, have been kind of buried in our subconscious. And, you know, you see examples of that in uh, people who may have a drink or two and, and they're imbibing a substance that depresses brain function, that's alcohol. So why do they get excited and maybe rowdy or talkative when they're taking in a, a central nervous system depressant? It's because they're selectively depressing the inhibitory pathways and they get excited. So another application of that is recovery from anesthesia where we may have some residual DNS depression or central nervous system depression and we tend to get disinhibited and, and things bubble up that maybe we haven't really thought about. So that's one explanation sort of in the acute phase. But I think, as you pointed out with regard to your heart surgery, perhaps more importantly, we tend to really be in touch with our own mortality. And this is something that we've suppressed out of fear in many cases. But this near-death experience, if you will, puts us in touch with it. And I think there is some very positive elements that may result from that if we're if we're focused on our consciousness. Gotcha. All right. I have another question along those lines. Researchers conclude that middle-aged people have a higher risk of memory loss and cognition decline after undergoing, undergoing surgical anesthesia. Now, you might expect to get temporarily knocked off by general anesthesia during surgery, but some of this new research has found that it has lasting impacts on memory and cognition. Again, this was one that when I had this, you know, my physicians basically said, no, 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 there's no truth to that. But the data is robust now. So two-part question. First, do we know what produces this? Uh, and second, do you inform patients in advance of this risk now that we know that it exists? Those are excellent questions. I think that especially when dealing with older patients, that the anesthesiologist uh, and perhaps even the surgeon should counsel the patients. They may have some lasting uh, effects on their brain from anesthesia and surgery. Um, you're correct. And we don't really know exactly what the mechanism is, but certainly it's not something that should be dismissed. It's definitely true that Everybody, regardless of age, but in particular older people, may have lasting effects after anesthesia and surgery. And, and basically this is an epigenetic phenomenon. That means that we have a lot of genes that are acting as switches, turning off and on pathways in our brain. And anesthesia in particular may, in fact, manipulate those switches in ways that result in memory loss, uh, changes in cognition that may be long-lasting or even, in some cases, permanent. And we don't really know exactly what the mechanisms are, but this is certainly not simply a direct effect of the drug that uh, should go away when the drug is eliminated from the body. This is something longer-lasting, and, and I think it could be envisioned as a matter of these drugs turning selective switches on and off in the brain and, and modifying our, our genetics, if you will. Gotcha. Thank you, doctor, for your answers. Let's, let's turn to your book. At first glance, it appears to be written exclusively for healthcare professionals. But when I read the book, I felt it reached out to everyone. What are your thoughts on that, doctor? 
Well, absolutely true. In fact, um, there's a a second book at the publisher now called Game Without Pain, Your Happiness Handbook. And it's just simply uh, a, uh, a detailed exploration of the game principles. They are gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. And these really apply to everybody. I think those are the four pillars of resilience and happiness. And so in the, in the pocketbook version, which is uh, coming out probably early 2021, I have taken away a lot of the stories that are in the book for healthcare professionals that relate to medicine and um, apply those just to everybody because I think you're absolutely right. The game principles are essential for everybody, not just people in the healthcare field. So I, I think, um, for example, gratitude. Gratitude is a central pillar of happiness. I think we can all appreciate that. And as you were saying about happiness before, you can be poor and happy, you can be deaf or blind and happy, but you can't be ungrateful and happy. And so gratitude clearly is one of the pillars of resilience and happiness. And I think acceptance, intention, and non-judgment are the other three, and, and we can talk about those if you like, if we have time. Uh, of course. We have a break in front of us. I want to talk about exactly that. In fact, when we come back from the break, I'm going to ask you to you know, explain uh, the broaden and build theory of positive emotions, and then we'll start wrapping around and going specifically after each of these principles and why they're important, Doctor. We're speaking with Dr. Greg, ha Greg Hammer about his work and book, Gain Without Pain, The Happiness Handbook. I'm going to tell you whichever version you get of this, uh, whether it's the professional medical version or, as Dr. Hammer just mentioned, that aimed at you want to read this book. These four principles, you know, when I read them, I was looking in the mirror. It's, it's something I've been teaching for years and years, and he has distilled them in, in very eloquently. They are very important. If what you want out of life is to feel satisfied that your life does make a difference, it does have meaning, and you enjoy happiness um, as you live it. All right, enough said. You can learn more about Dr. Hammer and his work by getting to his, his Facebook, and that's facebook.com, Greg Hammer, MD. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. 
Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Greg Hammer about his work and book, Gain Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting facebook.com forward slash Greg, G-R-E-G, Hammer, H-A-M-M-E-R-M-D. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas. Happens to be a hobby of mine. Some of those areas include intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So, doctor, somewhere over the rainbow, I hated to fade that one. I could have spent the entire three minutes of the music listening to it because I love it. By the one and only IZ is your choice. Please tell us. Why is this music important to you? More importantly, how does it inform us about who you are, sir? You referring to the piece that you just played or another uh, piece of my choice? No, this piece that I just played. I believe that's the piece you gave us, is it not? I, I may well have done, yes. Well, I think that piece in particular... You know, you can't help but be happy and smile when you listen to that music. It's it's so uplifting and just puts our troubles uh, and our distractions aside, I think, and and brings us into the present moment, which is where happiness resides. So, yes, I think like other music, that piece does, for me, uh, bring me into the present moment, and uh, I become unaware of my negativity bias and obsession with uh, maladaptive thoughts of the of the past and future when I hear that song every time. Uh, likewise. There's another piece of music that you wanted to mention. What is that? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the overarching uh, sense I have, Eldon, is that when we're in the present moment, we're happy. So if we think about all the happiest moments we've had, could be hiking in the forest with, you know, surrounded by tall trees and sunlight filtering through the leaves. We just become present, and and that just brings out our true nature, which is happiness. And I feel that way when I listen to a variety of pieces of music. It could be Mozart or Chopin, you know, perhaps centuries-old music that remains so present and moving that uh, for me it just draws me in and I kind of lose a sense of separation, lose the sense that I'm a separate self, that I'm, that I'm born, I live, and I die. It just brings me to that moment of, uh, of the present, which is, uh, you know, as I said, that's where happiness resides. So it could be a piece of classical music. It could be that lovely uh, Over the Rainbow song that you play as well. Gotcha. All right, sir. Uh, before the break, I suggested I was going to ask you to explain a theory known as broadening and building of positive emotions. Why don't we pick it up right there? What is that theory, and how is it relevant? 
Well, you know, I, I have to say I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I'm not really particularly well qualified to comment on that theory per se. What I would say is that, you know, we have two barriers to happiness uh, primarily. One is that we tend to have a negativity bias. And so we tend to remember negative things and forget about the positive things. And the other issue or barrier that we have with regard to our thought processes is we tend to obsess over the past and the future. And therefore, we rob ourselves of, of the evolving series of present moments that we have. And so we can actually rewire our brains to transcend this negativity bias and this obsession with the past and the future. And that's the good news, that even though we may be 50, 70, 80 years old, our brains remain plastic. And that means that we can adapt if we are purposeful about it. And that's the I in game, which is intention. And so I'd be happy to discuss that, although you may be more informed about that particular broad and build broaden and build theory than I am. I think you did very well. It is as it implies. You broaden those feelings and you build the the foundation to them. You you did a great job. All right, let's take on intention. Many people today are caring for someone, and maybe parents caring for our children, or it could be an older member of a family. You talk about intention in your book in a very specific way. Uh, intention is something everybody seems to be talking about right now. We we have lots of folks saying, well, you know, if your intention is this, you'll create it, the kinds of stuff you you read in the secret, okay? <clears throat> Some new age. Uh, well, I'll just leave it there. How does intention influence the nature of care in your sense as in terms of how we provide it and how we care for ourselves doing so? That's an excellent question, Eldon. I would refer to uh, John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, since he was really the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction, and uh, he started that in the late 1970s at the University of Massachusetts, and, and Dr. Kabat-Zinn said that awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose in the present moment non-judgmentally is the definition of mindfulness. So the on-purpose component of that is intention, and Again, you know, we have this negativity bias that we acquire as our minds develop, and we have this obsession with the past and future. But the good news is we can use our intention to rewire our brains and, and change the way we think. And I'll give you a good example of that, which is a very simple but very elegant and, and powerful one, and that is a program at Duke University called Three Good Things. And basically the researchers at Duke created this program, and all it requires is that the enrollee think of, and, and if they are so inclined, write down three good things that happen to them during the day as they prepare for bed. So this doesn't require any time. We can do this while we're turning the bed sheets down. And think of three good things because related to our negativity bias, we typically think of unpleasant things as we take stock of our day. So if we replace that with intention, Thinking of three good things, I'll say, for example, tonight I will think of uh, 
I'm grateful and, and, and so happy that it's a beautiful day here in Northern California. There's no smoke in the air for a change. I will think of this lovely sharing that you and I are having right now, and I hope to go for a bike ride uh, in a few hours. So I'll think of those things this evening as I go to bed. And what the researchers at Duke have found is that people who think of three good things each evening before they go to sleep actually sleep better and they become happier people. And this is enduring even after they stop the practice, so at least for some period of time. So that's an example of how we can use intention, in this case, purposefully considering three good things that happen to us during the day in the evening to rewire the way we think away from this negativity bias toward a more positive way of thinking. And so intention is just a very powerful tool, and, and we all need to recognize that we should live our lives with purpose. Why is it, doctor, do you think? I mean, we, we all have lots of biases, uh, and, and many of them are implicit, and we're just unaware of them. But why is it, do you think, we all have a negativity bias? What What is it about the human nature that gives rise to prioritizing negative experiences over pleasurable ones normally. I'll put normal in quotation marks. Right. That's a great question. I I don't know the answer to that for sure. I, I have my own thoughts about it. I think that from a teleologic or historic development standpoint, we or our forebears lived in times where there was a constant threat to safety. So there there may have been a saber-toothed tiger looming at the mouth of the cave, and, and you know, the, the uh, dominant male of the family wanted to protect his family and always had to be wary of danger. And therefore, this caused an obsession with thoughts of the future, like what might happen, and, and fear and anxiety were almost intrinsically related to a survival strategy, and and this sort of relates to, I think, a negativity bias where where there was a need or perhaps uh, a developmental and survival benefit to having a bias toward negative events and thoughts, uh, just to be wary and 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 suspecting all of the time. Where we don't really need to have that way of thinking anymore, though. Most of us are not constantly threatened. They're uh, isn't necessarily something dangerous looming around the corner, and yet this is sort of the way our minds are programmed to work. Uh, so I think that we as a society and individuals in a society have developed a lot more quickly than our minds have evolved, and we, we still have the imprint of some of these long-ago uh, ways of thinking that our forebears had as perhaps a survival advantage, and now they are really an impediment to happiness. And so if we're aware of that, then we can use our intention to, to transcend these, these sort of instinctual ways of thinking. Excellent. Recently, sir, you wrote, quote, two potent inducers of stress are, one, uncertainty about the future, and two, a world does, that does not comport with our wants and needs, close quote. We all live in such a world to some extent today with a COVID pandemic. And I know this is a very broad question, 
but as you know, as succinctly as possible, and I don't mean to cut you off either, because we do have, you know, some time left here. What is your general advice for dealing with these two stressors? Well, I think, um, you know, COVID certainly has cast a lot of doubt about the future. And so um, I, I categorize thoughts of other than the present moment as adaptive and maladaptive. So with regard to the future, it's adaptive to look forward to excellent and, and loving times with our loved ones. It's also adaptive to plan to put food on the table. So in some ways, it's adaptive to go to the future with our thought processes. But beyond that, it's generally maladaptive. And because of our negativity bias, we tend to catastrophize. We tend to think of the worst possible thing that will happen or might happen, even though it never really, those things rarely transpire. But our minds go to this catastrophic scenario, and that breeds fear and anxiety. And I think certainly now during the pandemic, naturally, many of us are thinking quite a lot about what will happen, when will this be over, will I still have a job, um, or if I'm off work, can I get a job? We, we think forward about all the, our favorite restaurants that are closed, will they reopen? There are so many things to consider. Uh, it's so much uncertainty presented by the pandemic that it's natural for us to go there. However, when we catch ourselves being, you know, sort of catastrophic in our thinking, that's the time to use our purposefulness and our, our brain plasticity to bring ourselves back to the present moment. And that's where happiness resides. So in order to do that, I would say go to the game principles. Think of your gratitude. Think of how much worse our forebears had it during the great influenza pandemic of 1918, when clean food and water and health care and, uh, you know, conditions just in general were so much worse, and, and on the order of 50 million people, give or take, perished. We're so much better off now. We have access to medical care, safe place to sleep. We can get in touch with our loved ones virtually through the Internet. So let's think of all the things we have instead of focusing on what we don't have. Acceptance. There is pain and suffering all around us, and we can't just do a spiritual bypass and try just to be happy without contemplating that which is uncomfortable for us. So I advocate during the game meditation that we get in touch with our breathing, we slow down our sympathetic nervous system, our, our heart rate, our rate of breathing, we contemplate our gratitude in a sequential fashion, then we go to acceptance and we think of things that are uncomfortable and maybe painful, but we visualize opening our hearts and bringing those thoughts and feelings closer and closer until we merge with them. And usually in that case, we find out, you know, this isn't as bad as I thought. I can live with this. And then we go to our intention where we, again, focus on the positive in our lives. And today I'm going to be grateful. I'm going to be kind. These are my intentions. And then finally, non-judgment, because we're constantly judging things and comparing ourselves to others favorably or unfavorably, and we tend to judge ourselves very harshly. So let's just look at the world exactly as it is, neither good nor bad, just is exactly as it is, and so are we. 
we are not good, we are not bad, we simply are, and let's just drop the judgments. And this is so liberating. And so I think these four elements of gain will help us be present and just let go of the maladaptive thoughts of the past and the future that we have, especially when times are difficult and stressful, as in the current uh, COVID pandemic. I love it. Gratitude, acceptance, intention, non-judgment, gain. Everybody out there, go get the book, Gain Without Pain, because understanding these things and implementing them are not necessarily the same thing. But Dr. Hammer has done a wonderful job at showing you how to implement each of these. And he's fleshed them out with stories. And it's as he calls them, the four core pillars of resilience. I tell you, read the book. All right, listen, there's a lot of burnout everywhere today. And burnout is something you talk about. Uh, you know, define for us what constitutes burnout and why is it on the rise amongst everyone, including those folks at home, but, you know, especially people who are in the health care industry and dealing with COVID? Sure. Well, I would define burnout uh, most essentially, Eldon, as emotional and physical and psychic fatigue that we experience related to stress. I think it's important to understand what stress is. There's acute stress and then there's chronic stress. Acute stress is For example, uh, we're out uh, by the pool and a toddler falls in the water and can't swim and we experience acute stress. Our heart rate goes up, our serum cortisol level goes up, and this actually prepares us for reacting quickly, jumping in the pool and, and rescuing that toddler. And so acute stress may be adaptive as long as we're able to be resilient and bring down the levels of adrenaline and cortisol, for example, in our bloodstream. So that's acute stress, but when that kind of stress, perhaps at a lower level, goes on for days to weeks to months, it's, it's maladaptive, it's harmful, it, it actually has deleterious effects on our cardiovascular system, our, on our immune system, it actually induces changes in our chromosomes that are akin to aging. So burnout is this chronic stress-induced state of exhaustion, and there are so many reasons why it's it's on the rise. I think, you know, I, I, we could talk about this for hours, about how things in our society have become so stressful. And all of the double-edged swords of every, every step forward in technology, for example, in some ways gets us further and further away from our true nature. Although there are wonderful things about the Internet and, so many things it has to offer. It also causes us to be constantly accessible and plugged in, and the same with our phones and our, you know, text messages and so on. They're very convenient. It's a great way to communicate with people, but it also has a downside, and, and we're always a little bit on edge. We need to answer that text right away. And so I think that the, the expansion of technology in our culture is one factor that has caused stress that uh, is sort of ever-present, and there are so many others that we could talk about. So I think the, the remedy for this, again, is getting back to the present moment, and and the game principles, I think, are, are key to that, and um, 
again, I think that's where uh, we can let go of our stress and, and be resilient and happier. So it's possible to have too much of a good thing. Maybe that's that's what you're saying. I mean, technology, um, the pace of life itself, even, you know, here at home, uh, people, you know, shut-ins, if you will. That's how many of us feel, like we're under house arrest. Um, you know, this radio show goes from my studio in Spokane through a codec connection to the studio in Seattle. Uh, so it may seem like I'm around a lot of people, but, you know, on my ranch, I'm still just kind of locked down. That's where lots of people live. You would think that that's a good thing. How? I mean, didn't we all want that? Didn't we all want that extra time? Is there too much of a good thing, doctor? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, like many other uh, cultural phenomena, the, the fact that we're isolated at home has good points and bad points. You know, it's it's great, for example, with regard to our work, that we don't have to waste time commuting and and try to cope with the aggravations of, of that, of getting on the road in our cars and, and facing that stress. It's also great in many cases that we can spend more time with our kids and our families. However, there's a, there's a darker side to it as well. It's, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, it's very disruptive to maintenance of a schedule and, and therefore may erode our ability to get a good night's sleep. We get tired. When we're tired, we tend to reach for things that give us quick energy like sugary foods and fatty comfort foods. And these things actually give us a rush and then we crash and we're tired again. Um, many of us are deprived of our usual mechanisms for exercising, going to the gym and and again, you know, our nutrition may suffer. So sleep, exercise, and nutrition are so important to our physical well-being. And yet, you're right, um, you know, being at home, although there's some good things about it, there are certainly some challenges. And, and, and that's how so many things in our culture tend to be with really kind of a good, a good side and a, and a not-so-good side. It's all about attitude. And when you want to learn to shape it, take control of it, and find happiness, Go get the book, Gain Without Pain, The Happiness Handbook by Dr. Greg Hammer. Doctor, I've appreciated you sharing everything with us today. I'm sure our entire audience has. We wish you the best in your endeavors to come. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next time, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them here as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.